Texas, Big Foth, with stories from the road. It was about seven weeks ago on a Sunday morning, 8.45 to be precise, at Denver International Airport in the security area where you're going through to get things checked to be able to get on the planes. And there was an announcement made for folks to just observe a moment of silence. Sunday morning, 8.45, September 11th, 2022. And when they observed that, when they stopped, this is what they heard. Something about that song, the haunting tune, that takes me dozens of places. People around the world these days know the song Amazing Grace. They may not know the words, which are the most important part, but they know that tune. That particular tune is a form of what is called New Britain that was put to the song almost 60 years after the penning of the words. But that song takes me dozens of places. I have sung that song, as many of you have, at bedsides, in cars going across country, at funeral services, in hospital rooms, in living rooms. I've sung it on the Washington, D.C. Mall with hundreds of thousands of men during the Promise Keepers event 20-some years ago. I've sung it in the Amazon jungle on the banks of the Kururai River with Aboriginal indigenous people called the Huarani who actually uh, killed the people who brought a message of grace to them. But one of the things that strikes me is that song takes me back to a moment in time, not because of the song, but because of the place. It was the summer of 1949, I was seven years old, and uh, my mother and my sister and I were coming home from India on a Danish freighter. 5,000 ton Danish freighter called the Johannes Maersk. 5,000 tons for a ship is not large. It's a tub, if you will. <laughs> I was seven, my sister was 11. There were eight passengers for almost five weeks on the open sea, out across the Indian Ocean, up through the Suez Canal, take a hard left, go out through the Mediterranean, go past the Rock of Gibraltar, across the Atlantic to Boston. When you're seven years old, that's a great adventure. There's something about standing on the deck of a ship with the wind blowing and the bow wave casting spray up in your face that's just exhilarating. The challenge was that we had left two weeks early to beat the monsoons, which are uh, seasonal there in that part of the world. And that year, the monsoon came two weeks early and we were in a typhoon created by this weather system for three days, 20 and 30 foot waves. The, we, our cabin was just under the bridge in this old tub, if you will, and the prow would go under the water and the waves would crash into the front or we'd go up and slide off sideways and everybody was sick. The captain, the crew, 
all eight passengers, of course. Uh, I, you know, I'm seven years old. And I, I was just getting started in life, and I thought maybe I was done. Maybe it was over, dead, kaput, gone. I've since been in several storms, not like that, but in a couple of powerful earthquakes in California. Storms at sea and earthquakes on land have one thing in common. There is nowhere to run. The difference between an earthquake on land and a storm at sea is that most earthquakes might last a couple of minutes, and that's pretty severe. Typhoons or hurricanes can last a couple of days. It was a storm like that in the Atlantic off the northwest coast of Ireland in 1748 that would decades later put words to the song we know as Amazing Grace. Let me give you the cliff notes to that story. Where, where did that song come from? Well, it began in London in 1725 when a baby boy was born to John and Elizabeth Newton. Elizabeth Newton was a godly woman, God-fearing woman. Her husband, perhaps not so much. He was a stern seafaring man, captain of his own ship, a merchantman. John sat at his mother's knee for almost seven years, listening to her teach him scripture, tell him Bible stories, no doubt sing songs to him and with him. Two months before her seventh birthday, Elizabeth Newton died of tuberculosis. And the next four years were challenging for little John. He was sent off to a boarding school that didn't work well for a couple of years. And then he got in with some young friends that weren't great. And at age 11, his father took him to sea. Can you imagine being on a, on a merchant ship? This, these ships are not 5,000 ton freighters, as small as that is by today's standards. Maybe at the top level, at the utmost, if you will, you'd have a ship that was 500 tons. And here's a boy, age 11, what we would call today a preteen, just on the cusp of his youth, being put into a situation with um, really challenging, tough people in tough circumstances. And for the next several years, he was with his father on that ship. And along the way, his father started transporting slaves. They would go from England down to the hump of Africa to uh, what they called the, the Guinea area. They called these people Guinea men because they would buy slaves on the southwest coast of Africa and then transport them across the middle passage, chained in between the decks, horrific conditions, anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of the slaves would die in process, and sometimes up to 20% of the crew themselves from fevers, malaria, and other kinds of things. When they got to the Americas, the Caribbean, South America, uh, the southeast part of the United States, not then the United States, uh, they would be sold. Oftentimes, most of the time, families split up, and with that money, rum and cotton would be bought to be brought back to England and make the trip again. Oftentimes the trip would take a year or two. And that's the context for John Newton's growing up 
years. When he was 17, his father had arranged for him to have what we would call a job interview. So I suppose trying to get get him, quote, out of the business. But he blew that off and went to see a girl that he had really become attracted to in London. Her name was Mary Catlett. And in that process, in that little journey, he was what would later become uh, called Shanghai. He was impressed by an impressment gang of the British Navy. They just would find a young man on the street, strapping young guy, grab him, put him on a warship, and off he'd go. And that's where John Newton went for the next almost two years. At one point, he, he hated the ship, he hated the work, he was rebellious, he wouldn't obey orders, he created, wrote bawdy songs about the captain, and he deserted. They captured him, brought him back, strapped him, tied him to the mast, and in front of 350 sailors gave him 96 lashes. At that point in his journals later, he wrote, I was thinking of ways to murder the captain or kill myself. The upshot was that he was traded off, passed off, to a merchant ship that turned out again to be a slave ship, taking himself to the coast of Africa, there given to a guy who ran slaves along with his wife, and he became a slave for a couple of years. So not only did he transport slaves, he became one. Then his father put out the word, let's go find my boy, we need to find my boy. And one of his friends who captained the ship, Greyhound, found him near Sierra Leone in West Africa, had to convince him to come back by fabricating a story. They put him on the ship, they, they headed for home. And as they beat northward, they got up off the coast of Ireland, northwest tip of County Donegal. And this would be March of 1748, horrific storm, ran into a horrific storm. And in that, the cargo shifted, uh, the ship was foundering, if you will, on its way down. Men had been washed overboard. He knew how to steer a ship. He had been on ships for years. They, I understand some of the stories say that he was strapped to the wheel. So he was there at one point for 11 hours. And in the middle of that darkness and that terror, he, he called out to God some, some thought, some remembrance, some seed from those early seven years at his mother's knee came through. And at age 23, he called out to God. It would be years, it would be 20 some years before he would pen those words. He, he, even though he called out to God and said that was the start of his journey, he said it was a, a long journey. He would not consider himself, quote, a believer in Jesus in the full sense of the word. He still ran slave ships for six years after that. Then he had a convulsive fit, a stroke of some kind and had to go to shore and was there for 10 years. And in that time, he grew in his faith. He was mentored by pastors and other solid men of faith. He applied to become a clergyman. Nobody really wanted him for a variety of reasons, as you might appreciate. And then at age 39, he did become part of the Anglican clergy. And for the next 40 years, 40 plus years, he pastored in a town called Olney and then later in Woolnothen. London. In 1772, 24 years after his experience in that horrific storm, he penned these words. It was a poem to go with a message that he was going to be preaching. And these are the words we know. A 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. You can put that in caps if you'd like, like me. The, the words are short, monosyllables, a lot of them. It was in the day when in the Anglican church you had to sing a certain kind of psalm, a certain kind of song, and oftentimes the meaning of the words would escape the common man, what he called plain people, plain folk. And so he wrote songs that could be remembered, wrote poetry that could be remembered. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And finally, when we've been here 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's an incredible story. I've read lots about John Newton. I have lots more to read. But here is a person who, as the captain of a ship, kept a journal. And that, every day, they keep journals on ships. So the weather conditions, the incidents, the where they are uh, on the face of the earth, if you will, or on the face of the high seas. And that translated that continued into his faith journey, keeping a journal. And then he would write, when he was at sea, he would write his wife now, Mary Catlett, that young girl that he'd gone to see, he would write her from the ship. And then later on, he would correspond with people who mentored him and learn both his uh, scriptures, his theology, his view of the world through correspondence by letters. So there are scores and scores of his letters. Just a few thoughts about that amazing grace that John Newton spoke of. First of all, grace is not natural. When we are crossed or hurt or injured in some way, uh, as a human being, justice or revenge is where I naturally go. I don't naturally go to, well, I forgive you for that. So it's, it isn't natural. It just isn't in that way. Grace is is way more than an idea, isn't it? Grace has to be experienced. It's, it's like a taste of fresh, cold water from a mountain stream high up in the Rockies near the source. Once tasted, nothing else compares to that. But we are broken people, aren't we? I mean, everybody has struggles. Many trials, toils, and snares is how Newton put it. I love what started happening a couple hundred years ago in Japanese culture, where a precious vessel, clay vessel of some kind or porcelain vessel would be broken. And someone, some artist, some craftsman, artisan, started taking those pots and putting them back together piece by piece by mixing glue and gold. And by the time that piece was completed, it became more beautiful and more valuable than the original. That process was called kintsugi, the golden 
journey. I would, I would submit that that's what amazing grace does. It restores the shattered to whole by the use of gold. It is indeed the golden journey. Grace is gold. Finally, grace is received. You got to receive it. I mean, it'd be like having that cold water available to you in the tap or the faucet in your kitchen, but never turning the handle. One has to be willing to receive that grace, that not natural grace from a most high God. And um, I like how St. Augustine put it. He said, grace comes to open hands. If I'm holding on to things, if I'm holding on to my insecurities, my fears, my anger over my history, grudges that I will not let go of, there's no space for grace. So if I'm willing to let that go and extend my hands, perhaps physically, but certainly metaphorically, to receive the grace of a God who wants to give it or who has given it, that's how it works. And once I've received it, I get to give it. When he says that the mercy of God is great, there's this old other song that has as part of the refrain, mercy there was great and grace was free. I think that as one of those Jesus followers, one of those guys who has received grace, that I have a wonderful opportunity slash obligation the great gift of being able to give it away, to be merciful. Because it's happened to me, I have the privilege of helping it happen for others. There's one greater thing than being forgiven, isn't there? And that's it. That's simply being able to forgive. It unlocks people's doors. It unlocks my door and lets me out to roam free on the high seas, if you will, but not in a storm. The point of this story and the upshot of it all is that John Newton discovered that that verse in the first chapter of the Gospel of John in the New Testament is true, that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's this Jesus of Nazareth person. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, here it comes, full of grace and truth. Here's a couple of questions for this week as we wrap up. One is, we know that God made grace available to us. At least that's what we're told and we've experienced, many of us. The, the real question is, who, what human being in my life, yours, showed us grace along the way, something that unlocked our doors or gave us great relief or freedom. What human being did that in your story? And secondly, to whom have I shown mercy along the way? To what situation can I point and say, yes, that was a great opportunity to do that. Just something to ponder in this next week. That's it for today. Thanks a million for listening in. And I just uh, am so grateful for those of you who subscribe. Some of you have sent notes or um, made comments that encourage us along this journey. Uh, 
Let's walk in grace together and I'll catch you next time. God bless.